Hello and welcome to the second episode of Is This Just Fantasy, a book club podcast presented by your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm your alternative host, Duncan Nicholl. Welcome back, Duncan. It's an exciting second debut. A new chance, a new day, a new opportunity to reshape our understanding of the fantasy genre. Oh, and I'm so excited for this one, Georgie. As we know this week, this was your pick, so the pressure's on you. This is a bad episode. There's only one person to blame. And what did I pick, Dunk? You picked Strange the Dreamer by Lanny Taylor, a book that I heard nothing about until you brought it up to me. Which is a great start for a share-and-share-alike podcast, isn't it? It really is. And this was such a out-of-the-blue... You know, it was not on my radar. I can't emphasize enough how this book wasn't on my list. It wasn't on my radar. I hadn't heard of it. No one was telling me to read it. And Jenny, before I picked up this book and read that first page, the only thing I knew was essentially the blurb that you gave to me before we started reading it. So why don't you kind of catch everyone up and tell them what is the premise of Strange the Dreamer. Stranger Dreamer is the story of Laszlo Strange. It's actually kind of hard to tell anyone about what it's about because it's really a mystery. You know, it's not a detective story, but it's about unwinding the thread of lost history. So it's a little hard to actually tell you what it's about without breaking into things that are going to ruin your experience of reading the book. But our main character is Laszlo Strange, his foundling, an orphan of war, who has no one whom he belongs to, but he's fascinated by the lost city of Weep. He's never really had the opportunity to live a life of his own. He lives in dreams and in fantasy, and his greatest dream is to one day journey to the lost city of Weep and uncover what happened to it, why did it vanish, and why was its name magically stripped away from it and replaced with the cursed name of Weep. And Lazo's opportunity for adventure finally comes when Weep returns to the world, and he gets a chance to finally go there. I think that's a beautiful summation, but almost by skirting, you mentioned the mystery of this book. And you said, yeah, that's a key element. Why well, I find really interesting how you've described that to the people. I wouldn't have said that this book was about the mystery. It's part of the setup, but I took this book, when I finished it, I went, that mm. was... That was a, such a beautiful kind of romance and story of young love. And really, if I had to classify this, like put it in a little subgenre yes. box, which don't always agree with doing, but if I had to, I would say this falls a bit more in that kind of fantasy romance. I completely agree, Than Duncan. fantasy mystery. It has a really, really solid romance. One of my favourites. And part of the challenge in talking about this book is that it's really hard to even bring up Laszlo's love interest because... She is so secret throughout the book. Part of the, you know, in both in the text of a book and in the format, you very rarely get a chance to see her. And when the story begins, she's secret, hidden away. And I think a big part of the appeal of this book is the envelope mysteries. These mysteries within mysteries. What's up with Weep? Why did it lose its name? Who are the gods they keep talking about? What calamity have they suffered? Why do they need help? And slowly, bit by bit, all these mysteries get answered piece by piece. So I think it's pretty obvious you love this book. I absolutely love this book. It's one of my all-time favourites. It might be my favourite fantasy novel of all time. Oh, that is high praise. That is high praise. And 
I'll be honest, when I read this, I was I was a bit scared. I was a bit scared, Georgie, that I wouldn't like mm. it. Because um, I hadn't heard of it, and it wasn't on... I wouldn't, It wasn't my type of fantasy, or the fantasy I would normally read. Uh, I normally go a bit more pulpy, a bit more sort of sorcery, maybe a bit more grimdark. But I was so relieved when I got... And it wasn't instant, but as soon as I hit that kind of one-sixth, one-fifth of the way through the novel, well, actually, the end of kind of part one, it clicked, and it just took on this new life of its own, and I found myself so much more invested in elements I normally, not that I don't care about, but aren't normally as much of a focus in the fantasy that I read. Those being, as you can establish, the mystery and this relationship um, between sort of the two principal POV characters. See, that's so strange. And Sarai. Yeah, I absolutely adore this book. I think this might have been my fourth or fifth time reading it through just for this podcast. Oh, wow. That that's a bit because it's not it's not particularly it's not a small book you know it's a it's a nice comfortable kind of six hundred well five hundred and so pages yeah I've only ever listened to it in its audio format it was actually one of the first books I ever bought uh, on Audible uh, the first one was Absalom Absalom which I got for a class uh, and then I got Dune and then Strange of a Dreamer oh what a lovely selection thank you Duncan I'm glad you approve of Absalom Absalom so much. Absolutely, absolutely, one of the faves. Um, but let's just kind of dive in then. So what, we from the start of this book, we get introduced to Laszlo Strange, this foundling character. And I'll be honest, part of the reason I think I didn't fall in love straight away is because I was like, yeah, I, I've seen mystery child who doesn't know his parents um, stuck in an abbey. I've seen that one before, guys. Mm. Where, where are we going with this? Do you think anything sets it apart, sets Lazaro apart as a perspective character? What I think does set him apart, though, as we kind of go forward, is how he's not sort of rebellious, he's not seeking out his fortune almost of his own volition. He instead goes into effectively academics. And in the first part of this book is the story of Laszlo mm-hmm. when the mystery of Weep, his first instinct is, I'm going to travel across the land, you know, searching far and wide. His first instinct is... I'm going to the Great Library and I'm going to spend 10 hard years of study just going through the books, which for someone, you know, who's spent a good portion of their life in academics, it's like, yes, some recognition. That is an accomplishment. I gotta say, Dunk, I think there was one thing I was a bit nervous about in introducing this book to you is I don't think academics as a people come off very well in this book. They're sort of seen as stuffy and unimaginative and a lot of them are charlatans. Yeah, and I would think that's a beautifully accurate depiction of academics. (laughs) So I'm not going to... I can't dislike it for it. Uh, Particularly, the character... uh, So in in the first part of the book, we're not introduced to Weep yet. None of the characters Mm. there have we been introduced, which is just Laszlo in this library. And we're introduced to who I first thought was going Mm -hmm. to be our villain. And that's a character called Theon Nero. Yeah, Theon Nero. What I think is so great about this character is that he's introduced like a villain he he is the antagonist he is in laszlo's way um and he essentially takes credit for laszlo's work absolutely there's something so mundanely villainous about thion you know he's not this mustache twirling villain there's there's something really compelling about how this is a bully whom you know from your workplace someone who's had everything he's ever wanted to provide for him 
who's who ha- who's powerful, who's good looking, who is everything that Laszlo lacks. Thion is is cynical and clever, and um, and Laszlo is very sincere and 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 credulous. I think another point uh, that really sets them apart is that Thion, throughout the novel, he's constantly questioning Strange, being like, "What's your angle? What do you want out of this?" And Strange. Very often it's like, well, I just want to help people. And Thion doesn't understand this. And secondly, mm. takes advantage of this. And I think that just makes him, again, spend a bit of time in academics. Yeah. You course. know this person. Or at least I have met people like this. And it brought forth in me this really mm. like understandable hatred for Thion. Even though his life isn't perfect, uh, you know, he does have some hardships, but I hated him more than I've hated any kind of Dark Lord or, you know, even later some... There's been books I've read with outright, you know, murderers. And Thion is, isn't that, you know, he, he doesn't kill anyone, he doesn't harm anyone, he doesn't really break the law. He's just a jerk. And I managed to hate him so much more, almost because of that. Sure, because you don't really interact with murderers and Dark Lords. But you know people like Thion in your real life. Initially, Lazo completely buys into Thion's hype, just like everyone else. He sees him as a hero. It's only when he has to, you know, he steps to help Thion, and Thion rebukes him, that he starts to resent him in the slightest. You're absolutely right. And I, when I first sort of put the book down, went, there's nothing like, Laszlo, get over him. And even in later parts of the book, in part four, after they've been through all this stuff together, Laszlo still thinks of Thion as special and accomplished. But the worst sections, um, where we do see yeah, Thion, so he's part of like the Alchemist uh, Guild organisation in this world. And you do see, alright, he's not as brilliant as everyone says, but he does have huge respect. Yeah, mm. He follows the scientific method. This is a man. Yeah, and I, you know, that's what I really like about Laney's writing of, of Thion, because it would be so easy to make him this dullard, to make him someone who just gets by uh, off of his reputation. But no, he is this intelligent man, and he deserves uh, a measure of respect. Like, it doesn't take the easy way out. You have to take him at his accomplishments. And you have to lambast him for his cruelty. Absolutely. It's this sense that, you know, he is still dedicated and he is still hardworking, mm-hmm. even if he is, like I said earlier, a jerk about it. <laughs> um, I also think, I really want to highlight this, because this is the idea that Strange thinks he's brilliant, Strange thinks little himself, and this is equally a journey of Laszlo realising his own kind of secret internal magnificence. Um, but this quote is from the start of the book, where Strange thinks very little himself and there's an event where Theon comes to the library where Strange works and says I want every book by Laszlo Strange. That's right Laszlo is not a scholar he's a scrivener and a librarian his job is to pen books and to you know to take care of the bookshelves but in his private life he is painstakingly uh, scrounged for paper and ink in order to write his own books his books on the history and stories of Weep. And isn't that so strange in a fantasy hero to see that he's not this adventurer, he's not a thief, he's not anything exciting like that. He, he's, a, he's a writer. He's a historian. 
Now, why does Lazo believe that Thine has stolen from him? Why is there this grudge between them? Well, that's because the lowly librarian did the unforgivable mm. thing to Thion. He helped him. That's right. He helped him uncover the secret of making gold. Mm -hmm. And this is something that Thion can never forgive Laszlo, that the key to all his success is this lowly librarian. And there is a teeny bit more to that. And this is where we start to unpack the dark part of Strange the Dreamer. Because Thion can't forgive Laszlo, not just for helping him, not just for taking away his accomplishment, because Laszlo discovers that Thion's father is abusing him. And this is where we're going to get into some of the dark parts of Strange Dreamer. Because fundamentally, this is a story about trauma. And it's a story about sexual violence. And I think this, that this book does a better job of exploring this than almost any other book I've read. It's so respectful and so delicate in how it handles these topics. And it's, that is such a kind of hurtful scene. I mentioned earlier when I said about Thion, you know, this guy has had horrible things done to him. And he has, you know, he, he's in this abusive relationship with his father. Um, Laszlo, and Laszlo pities him. He tries to help. And that just hurts Thion more. He can't accept that help. And that's when I said, like, you know, you just want him to, like, let it go. You know, to be able to get over and be nice and become friends with Laszlo. Because you can kind of see it could work. They could do great things together. But he's been put into such this box of expectations and um, almost society roles that he can't accept help from a lowly librarian clerk. And this, of course, leads back to the scene where Thion steals his books. Not by, like, sneaking in, but by abusing his power and just asking for them. And they have to be given. And this builds into what we were mentioning earlier. To this scene where Strange, he can't tell him, he's done so much good, but he can't let anyone know. And he almost can't recognise it himself. To the point at which, when Thion comes and asks for his books, Strange is there like, he's just taking them away. He's just being horrific to me. He's destroying, you know, my life's work. And then we get this quote, which I just think underpins where Strange is. Not necessarily at the very end of part one, but towards the end of part one, mm. when he's almost at his lowest moment um, in terms of his self-opinion. And the quote goes, once Thion has Strange's books, and Strange's like, oh God, is he going to burn them? Is he going to just make paper planes? And never once did he consider that Thion might be reading them. And I don't know why, but that just had such an impact on me that he always can't see the value of what he's done. And then that's what makes the forthcoming journey so kind of great for Laszlo. Because it's not just, he doesn't go out and just win things. He doesn't just go out and save more lives. He, he kind of goes out and realises not only that he's going to do great things, or he can do great things, but he's already done great things. And what he's done, what he's dedicated his life to, has value, even if none of the kind of stuffy academics uh, recognise it. Mm -hmm. And why, Duncan, has Thion Nero taken Thion's books? Why is he reading them? And that is because Weep, the lost city, the city without a name, that has not been heard from for 215 years, is sending a delegation mm. across the lost desert and will be arriving shortly. And the arrival of the Tizer Cane out of Weep is preceded by an unusual herald 
a white eagle called Rafe, which only Laszlo seems to be able to see and which vanishes in the middle of the air. And Rafe is one of the great mysteries that is sort of left hanging into the book. Even at the end of the book, we don't know who Rafe is. Duncan, who do you think Rafe is? Okay, so what kind of George is getting out here is that this hell, this uh, white bird that comes before the marching army is never explained uh, in this novel. There is a follow-up. I haven't read it yet. I know Georgie has. And I've been listening, well, who could it be now? I feel if I kind of dive into my theories, we're gonna, it kind of unravels a lot of the mystery of uh, Strange the Dreamer. So I'm just going to throw this down now. Change the Dream is a good book. I recommend it to all fantasy fans. Go forth, read it, come back, finish the podcast then. All right, cool. I'm glad I didn't have to want to say that. Rafe. So, we uh, later discover through this narrative that in Weep, there are these beings who are godlike compared to humans. Yeah, in Weep, there are these beings whom they call gods who have these magic powers. Each of them has a single magical power. Which, I'm not going to lie, is a fair claim, and who's going to argue with them when they have magical powers? But there is this bird that flies about, and it helps both Laszlo, and it helps the children of the gods who are still stuck in weep. And I've... Basically, my fan theory is that this wraith is somehow, because we don't know all the gods' powers. In fact, there are gods that are left intentionally obtuse. There's a goddess, I believe, of nothingness or forgetfulness or oblivion. Uh, Letha, the goddess of oblivion. And my theory is that perhaps this may be her, her power. This is a god that has fled, who's run away, and is just trying to subtly guide things for whatever reason. Because we're not offered a reason why that god would want to help. And it might not be that god, to be fair. But I believe uh, this bird, this wraith, is one of the other godly beings trying to nudge uh, Laszlo and the god, uh, godspawn, the children of the gods, uh, into like the right direction to achieve some sort of end. Thank you for your theory, Duncan. I don't know. I hope I'm right. I think it's a good theory. We shall see all in good time. If it turns out that it's none of that, it's actually, oh, no, 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 it's, it's a multidimensional octopus creature in the form of a bird, I'll, I'll be annoyed. Why does it, it have to be a multidimensional octopus creature? Is it enough that it would be a multidimensional bird creature? Uh, well, no. Oh, okay. Always have, if you're a multidimensional being and you don't basically look like a, a tentacled octopus person, I think you're missing out. If you're going to reach in all those dimensions, you need those tentacles. One mm. in each. It's just, it's just logical, mate. Point. Come on. You're right, you're right, absolutely. So, Joey, do you want to kind of jump forwards on this magical journey? I want to grab one more thing. There's one more thing I think we need to talk about in part one. So the Tizakane arrive out of the desert. And we've learned about the Tizakane ahead of time. You know, Laszlo played as a Tizakane as a kid, but they seek scientists. That's why they've come to Zosma. They're looking for people of great intellect to help them with something wrong in Weep. And they won't tell people what it is. They're saying, if you want to find out what it is, and we do need help, you have to come with us and see it for yourself. Because if we told you what it was, you would not believe us. And of course, everyone puts forward Thion Nero, the greatest man of its generation. And when they arrive, Thion greets them in the language of Weep, the unseen city, which he's learned from Laszlo's books. And Laszlo seizes his destiny when he rushes forwards as the Tyskin are leaving to speak to 
Errol Fane, the leader of the Tizakane, this larger-than-life heroic figure, and implores them to let him go with them. And what a powerful moment that is, because what his basic argument boils down to is, take me with you, I'm a huge fan, and I know stories. Yeah, he has nothing to recommend him. He's not a mathematician, he's not a physicist, he's not a metallurgist. He doesn't know anything about that. But he's fascinated by Weep. And the thing that clinches and gets him his opportunity to go is when he says, I know a lot of stories. And he presents himself in his narration of this pathetic moment where he has nothing else to offer. People laugh at him, but the Tizer Kane take it seriously because they respect the passing over of knowledge. And it's been a long time since they heard any new stories. I think that is such a... I think that's such a good point to make for sort of our modern society. That's one of those takeaways I took from this book is the fact that uh, an issue you can kind of argue is, you know, what do we value between sort of STEM and like humanities in terms of subject matter? And I think this is a great kind of showing of like, well, in, you know, in stranger society, in the society that Lazo Strain has grown up in, knowing stories mm. is not a value. It's a very soft, it's not a science, but it's so validating to him to be like, well, actually, in this other culture that's the best thing you could be a storyteller you know you could preserve our history you could tell us about other cultures through those stories and it's the first sort of step um into the, the society of weep where you realize okay maybe this is where laszlo will be able to fit in maybe this is why he should set out because these people will value him and they accept him they accept him and they take him in and, you know, he doesn't leave anyone behind. Only one person as he goes will miss him. Laszlo has finally has the opportunity to find a people who will take him in and make him feel like he matters. And that's when his story begins. And that's the end of part one of Strange Dreamer. The last part of part one is jumping forward six months. And you get to see Laszlo uh, in the midst of his journey, journeying through the desert finally on his way to weep finally seizing his opportunity and uh and having living this life of adventure now geordie how do you feel about that because when i first read this book having that sudden it felt like i just skipped over the character development it's like we've gone okay he runs off he's off on his adventure and six months later okay he's a hardened adventurer now cool moving on how do you feel about it i don't quite agree with that assessment and the reason I don't agree with that is Laszlo's fundamental nature hasn't changed in the slightest. There's a tra slight change in aesthetics. We're now seeing him in the midst of his journeys. He still has a great deal of innocence. The only difference is that he is now, uh, he's now on his way. He's not at the closure of his story. He's just getting started. I think that's a very valid point for uh, Laszlo's characterization. I still feel like oh, it's hard because I would love to have seen it, but. And that's why I fed when I finished part one. When you take the novel as a whole, I do see how, you know what, there's an amount of time and I can understand how the pacing would never have worked the same way if they'd shown them just kind of get a bit, I'm going to say harder as a term. But I do feel we don't see him meet and make friends. He already has friends. And comparing him to the start of the story, where he's a very solitary person, I feel like we missed out. I would have loved to have seen Laszlo start to make friends for the first time. Because I think that's a very bit of character. Yeah, I, I concede that. Oh my god, that's, I think that's the first criticism we've done. Big days. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you for acknowledging my magnanimity. 
it's it is beautiful and you're very good at it well done sir wow what a podcast we're making i'm so glad that in this short time you and i have finally become friends i know before we started fuck i can barely stand you anyway all these years we've been hanging out and i just couldn't stand this guy a real know-it-all only plays barbarians <laughs> in dnd but let's wrap up part one when i first read this book back in 2017 i came out of this book out of part one of this book and i thought that thion and laszlo were going to get together i thought they were going to be a couple by the end of this book i thought the exact opposite i genuinely th- i came out of part one thinking that thion and strange mm-hmm were to be the center conflict i thought these are two people and i thought it would be almost uh so two people almost so alike that they could never quite both get along but now that you said that i can see what you mean like it was either going to be a throwdown between two people who could who could have been like the best of friends but circumstance tore them apart or two people overcoming society's sort of stigma and boundaries to be the that duo yeah exactly it's enemies to lovers stuff it's 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 emma all over that's not how the story comes down but i I would bet my bottom dollar and i haven't read a lot of like stranger dream fan fiction i actually have never really encountered stranger dreamer fan communities at all but i would bet my bottom dollar that the number one couple in fan fiction is not uh laszlo and sarai i would bet it's laszlo and thion one more question duncan i'm not often sure how to classify strange of a dreamer as a book uh particularly when it comes to age categories because on one hand there is um there is some sort of ya element so i can see why someone would call it ya but on the other hand there's a certain darkness in the materials which makes it kind of hard for me to think of it as a YA book. What do you think? I would actually argue this is a form of YA. I would say that because although the characters are still relatively young at 21, they are still young adults in the sense that they are still learning about the world. That's true. And learning about each other and learning about relationships, particularly mm. in a very YA uh, sense. That's a, well put. Sort of... That's a well put point, Dunk. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's it's about maturation. It's also about the loss of innocence, which are very YA topics. Oh, absolutely. I think loss of innocence is a mm. major theme uh, in this novel. With that in mind, part two. Part two. So when we first spoke, Duncan, about this book, you had just finished part one. And so I got your impression of it then. But from now on, I have no idea what your impression is of Arrest of Stranger Dreamer. And in part two, we get our first switch in perspective character. In part two, we're introduced to Sarai, who is almost the answer to all the mysteries that have been set up in part one. This is a character that is in weep, in the centre of what's going on, but it still manages to very much tease out those answers. Mm. Yeah, it's such a slow answering of questions. You never, ever quite get the full picture. It's small little mystery after small little mystery. Where are they? What are these people? What are they doing? How have they survived? Why do they need to survive? Why are they hiding? What I love about how Lainey Taylor has done this is that Mm. it never felt arbitrary. It never felt like the author was coming in and just pulling the curtains on the answer to the mystery. Mm -hmm. What it felt like, we are seeing Sarai 
go through her normal day-to-day life. And, you know, we see her have a chat with her friends, go and eat dinner. Mm -hmm. And things are coming together, but it's not like the first conversation she has with her friend is, oh, hi, do you remember everything that's happened in the last 15 years? It waits for everything to come up in a way that feels very natural, but also obviously is, you know, constructed to hit the points for the rest of the narrative. But it never feels like that. It feels natural. And that, I think, is one of the biggest kind of successes in this sort of mystery is that I never feel like I'm the answers are being kept just out of reach. I always feel like they're there and we'll come to them at the right time. You know, Dunk, it's been so long for me since I first uh, read this book. It's really hard for me to put myself back in the shoes of where I was when I was first finding out this stuff. Can you tell me what image was being built in your head as you read this unfolding mystery? Okay. Yes, because this is very interesting, because as I was reading this section, mm. I kept on having to update, like, the the theatre in my mind of what everything looked like as more details were revealed. So first things first, introduce to these characters, and you're not told at first, but uh, Sarai and the characters around her, her sort of pseudo-siblings, who are all stuck together in this place, you're not told at first, but they actually all have blue skin. So you start to think, okay, I'm pitching them kind of one way based on sort of clothing. I'm putting them into, I'm not going to have a cultural box. Um, And then you're like, oh, okay, that's what they look like. But the bigger mystery is where they are. Mm -hmm. Because we find out they're in the Citadel, um, which is a bit like a prison. Just a Citadel. And I pictured it once because I knew um, they talk about it being slightly dilapidated or in ruins or not being able to work properly. Mm. So I imagine this sort of um, dome structure, sort of a dome temple, partly in ruin on top of a hill. Mm-hmm. And they talk about uh, trying to make sure the humans can't see them. So yeah, like, they okay, can't are they going down? Are they going down little passageways and they're sort of scurrying about these ruins? Is it just outside a city or is it on a hill overlooking a city? Mm-hmm. Um, and, it fills and builds, and the actual reveal, we don't get the reveal until we're actually in Laszlo's position looking at the structure. Yeah, you have structure. to see it from the outside. And I'll be honest, this was, this was impressive. This is one of those things you're like, oh, I want that visualised. I want to see that on a book cover. Mm. I want to see a painting of this huge, uh, colossal even, almost winged angel structure. Uh, so a Statue of Liberty with massive wings either side, suspended in the air above the city of Wheat. Yeah, it's com- it's huge. It's comparable to the size of a city. And its wings are curled around, blossoming out the stars and the sun, leaving the whole city washed in darkness. It's a, it is a kind of an epic image. It's something you want to see in, um, sort of from that, those Greek myths, the, I say Greek myths, but sort of the Colossus of uh, Road, something like a... Very Harry Housen, this just ginormous structure. And mm, I also picture something it of an not album as cover. this like smooth um, statue, but I sort of imagine mm-hmm. that like all the way along it, you see little bits of like almost just traditional palace just sort of sticking out or little walkways wrapping around the statue. Mm. They even say that um, their sort of like veranda from their bedrooms is the hand. I uh, know, isn't that great? Yeah, Sarai's bedroom is in the wrist of the statue. And she walks out onto the hand to walk around, to look out over the city. It's just a, it's a beautiful bit of imagery. And this is when we kind of discover 
that the reason why Lazlo and all these great minds have been gathered to weep is to get rid of it, because no one knows how. Yeah, and very slowly, piece by piece, the story is unfurled. This is meted out really deliberately, piece by minute piece. But finally, in part two, we get the full picture. In this world, no one knows that magic is real. They don't believe in it. Except for the people of Weep. The people of Weep know that magic is real because they have met the gods. The gods, like the godspawn whom we've already met, were blue. But they were not like the children because they were cruel. They were tyrants. They ruled over the city with fear and violence. They used their powers to abuse the people of Weep. And this has only come to an end because the leader of the Tizer came, Errol Thane, whom we've already met, led this rebellion. He slew the gods. He's called the God Slayer. But even though all the gods are dead, the troubles of Weep are not over. They still live in the shadow of those dark times. Because with their last acts of bitterness and vengeance, two of the gods in their last remains of spite... First, Scaphus, the leader of the gods, is this, uh, he, he was the leader because he could control this indestructible metal, Mizarthium, which composes the substance of the citadel. He used his last breath to cause the wings of a citadel to envelope the city, to cover it up, and to blot out the sun and the sky. And the goddess Letha, goddess of oblivion, has the ability to eat memories, not just control them, but to take them and devour them, wiping out all recollection. She ate the city's name. Every time they try to give it a new name, it vanishes too. And that leaves the only name left to them, which is the name she gave it. Mm -hmm. And so, the last vestiges of the gods unknowingly live above the city. They dwell within the citadel. They are the last survivors of this this battle where Errol Thane slew the gods. Um, and they await for 15 years up here, uh, anticipating the day when the people in Weep Below discover their existence and then they come up to kill them. So the arrival of, um, of Laszlo and the rest of the delegates, whose mission is to destroy or move the Seraphim, uh, inevitably is going to drive them into conflict. And I find it really interesting, because out of all that kind of plot you've just kind of explained, none of it matters to me <laughs> relative to the kind of Romeo and Juliet story that then forms between Soraya, one of the godspawn, up in the Citadel, and Laszlo. And mm. as soon as that gets introduced, it almost overtakes the story. Well, in my opinion, it kind of overrides all other elements. That's what I'm invested in. That's what I want to see succeed. And whether or not the Citadel mm-hmm. moves, whether or not Weep gets on with the Godspawn, what happens to Theon, uh, Thion, it's almost irrelevant. As long as those two can be together, I'm like, unhappy. Thumbs up. Could you delve into a little more? Like, uh, what about romance do you find so compelling? 
so it's interesting because so I do often read a lot of kind of romantically focused uh, fantasy literature mm-hmm. or literature in general. Jane Austen, that's deep if I go. But what I think I find so interesting about this particular romance is that I personally feel it captures. Uh, this comes back to that kind of YA angle, the young romance so much. Mm-hmm. So I think I need to give a bit of context here. Mm. Strange, the dreamer, and Soraya meet up through their dreams. That's right. Soraya's magical godly power mm-hmm. is that she can send off moths into the night, um, and when they land upon a sleeping person's head, she can step into their dreams. Mm. And normally what happens is she's a passive observer. Yeah. You know, and she can she can manipulate the dream a bit, but she can't interact directly with the dream. That's right. They, no one can see her. She is an invisible ghost living in their dreams, which has given her the name the Muse of Nightmares. Because all of the the Mizarfim still living in the Citadel have their function. Um, there is a... The sparrow, who is orchid witch, she helps plants grow, which means they can eat. They have functioning gardens. Uh, they have uh, they have Ruby, who uh, who who can set herself on fire, and aside from destroying bed sheets, she does an important job of heating water. Uh, and then there is Feral, uh, who has a, who is a cloud thief. He steals clouds from other parts of the world. To give them things like rainwater, uh, which if you live uh, above a desert city, uh, is really important. And Sarai is the penultimate member of this, this these last remaining godspawn. And her job is, as the muse of nightmares, she goes into the dreams of the people of Weep. And she refuses to let them get over their fear of the past. She fills their heads with memories of these past traumas. And in doing so, she makes them afraid of a citadel. They can never get over this old fear. They can't even look up at the sky. And this is more than just practicality. It's more than just to keep them safe. It's actually been done out of hate. This is an act of vengeance, which Sarai has been compelled into from a young age. When we begin the start of a story... She has moved past it. She's trying to actually fill the people weep with good dreams when the, uh, when the start of a story comes around. But she has to do this secretly because all of the Godspawn are, are led by the final member, the only person who remembers the carnage. That being Minya. Minya, I think, is the closest person who comes to the antagonist of the story. Minya is an interesting character she controls ghosts. When people die, their souls begin to leave their body and they hang around for a little while, unable to move on before they evanesce. Uh, Lainey Taylor loves the word evanesce. Uh, I don't even think evanesce <laughs> is a word. <laughs> like, I think she just decided that evanescence was going to become a verb. Um, and she, she made it so. Like, we just use it but... enough, it will work. <laughs> yeah, she does the same thing for the word witchlight. She says, his eyes were full of witch light. I'm like, that is not a word, but bravo to you, because I know exactly what you mean. Um, and Minya is a strange character, because she is, she's stunted. She is the oldest of the Mazarfim living in the Citadel. She's 22 at the start of the story, but she looks like she's seven years old. She hasn't grown a day 
since the carnage, since the day that Errol Thane and the other captive members of Weep rose up and slew uh, the gods. Because she is so stunted, literally and emotionally, by the horrors she's seen that she cannot age. She cannot change. She's so caught up in the past and in her hatred that she literally doesn't grow. See, what Georgie's doing here is incredibly clever. Because in many respects, he's mirroring what author Lanny Taylor does throughout the book. Because in this novel, during the dream chapters at night, Laszlo and Saray get to be together. And you have this lovely kind of romantic jaunts through their dreams. But when they awaken in the day, we go back to the rest of the plot. And that is this podcast at the moment. I'm just here like, yes, but Georgie, the romance. And he's like, but the rest of the plot is like, yeah, but can we just get back to the romance? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, and that's true. That's true. The, um, the, the fact that the romantic scenes are literally bisected by the daytime. She can't come down to him during the day. They can only meet at night. Means that stuff just keeps getting in the way. You know, when, when they have their fateful first kiss, it's stolen by the sunrise. And then they have to, and the next chapter is called The Whole Day to Get Through. And it's about an agonizingly long day waiting to so see your love again. It, for me, personally, it resonated so well with mm-hmm. that sort of idea of young love. Because it is, it's this, you've met your young love, mm-hmm. now you have to go to work again. You've got to go back to your normal life. And you, all you can think about is, yeah, but I just want to get off. I just want to get out of college. I just want to go. I just want to see her. Mm. Um, and it is a very fast romance mm. as well. These are two people relatively sheltered and new to having relationships. And mm-hmm. so it's all the excitement and the fact that when they're together, it's not just... It, when, you know, you kind of... I, from my personal thinking young life, it's like it's a dream. Everything's so wonderful. You're kind of on a cloud. But for Laszlo mm-hmm. and Sarai, they are physically physically they are in their dreams they can have whatever they want they can go wherever they want Mm -hmm. whatever they can make up they do Mm -hmm. we get these beautiful chapters we get this lovely almost first date where they go and they have a picnic Mm -hmm. by the riverside and they take turns dreaming up wonderful food Mm -hmm. to present to the other exactly it's so imaginative and it's really in some of those chapters where laney laney taylor the quality of her writing uh, really sings through because there's a lot of other writers who would not be quite as imaginative. Lainey Taylor has this wonderfully flowery uh, prose, which if she was, say, writing a detective novel would be completely out of place. But it's perfect for a story like this, which is about magic and about dreams. And it just... um. The, the, the substance of the text matches so perfectly with its content. I think it's so beautiful how she balances these dreams. They're not they're not too abstract. I'm never sitting there mm-hmm. going, well, what's happening? You know, it's not it's not that kind of normal on the street, you know, physics are falling out of place. It's not that uncomfortableness. Mm-hmm. It's just that wonder, that sense of kind of heightened beauty that something can only exist mm. in your mind. A key point that's brought up is that Laszlo uh, the first time him and Saray meet, it's in the city of Weep. But not Weep as it is, yeah. but Weep as Lazo has mm-hmm. always dreamed it to be. You know, it's magnificent. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the domes sparkle brighter. The streets are clean. You know, everyone's like happy and the flowers are growing. There are mythical beings walking around. Exactly. Mythical beings walking about. 
And this is what almost endears uh, Sir Percy to Laszlo is the fact that he can see or he can imagine you know, things at their best and he sees the best in Weep and mm-hmm. somehow he's, uh, matches uh, Laszlo's kind of relationships with a lot of characters. Even with Thion, you know, he's, he tries to see the best in people and that's when I really started to like see where his sort of most endearing characteristic was is his ability to kind of, you know, see past the problems, appreciate that, you know, people have not lived perfect lives, mm-hmm. but there are good people underneath. Mm-hmm. And that's where mm-hmm. their relationship kind of comes back into the main conflict, which is the people of Weep mm-hmm. suffered under the gods. And I say suffered. Yes. The abused... Oh, Julie, I, I'm always struggling to talk about it because it is really... It's, it's not it graphic, is hard to talk about it's it's difficult it is. no that's ri- that's very true it's not graphic the slightest you never see anything nothing happens on screen it's all in the past it's all past trauma and what makes that past trauma um, even kind of more connective is that the in within the narrative once the character is selected by the gods so say you know, a young woman a young man the gods come down they pick them they say you're coming back with us you're coming back to the citadel and they can be there for a year, yep. it could be three years, it could be five years. They could never come back. But if they do come back before they leave, the goddess of sort of oblivion goes and takes all mm. their memories of what happens. And you just mm-hmm. and then they're just dropped back to earth. And there's the character of Errol Fane's mother who's missing a hand. Lazarus, how did that happen? She just goes, I don't know. That's mm-hmm. it could have been horrific, it could have been an accident. It could have been uh, an act of torture. She doesn't know. We don't know. And so it mm-hmm. just kind of leaves that blank. It's almost... Um, you get a lot in horror. You know, it's more terrifying what you can't see. Don't show the monster. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. We're, we're not shown the horrors that were inflicted. We just see the broken people yeah. left behind. And that is so much more powerful within this text. It is. And there's... And it's... it's it's And what the thing about it is that... This absence of memories, it accomplishes two things. One is that it allows Lainey Taylor to write about these really horrible things in a respectfully abstract way. There's nothing graphic, as you said. It's not grotesque. It doesn't go into this immense, horrible detail in order to <gasps> shock you. Um, it leaves you with this really uncomfortable feeling. You empathize. You're not horrified. You don't put the book away in disgust. You say you resonate with the characters. You almost... Um, and there is... You, it mm-hmm. never makes you feel Go like it's, she's trying to put you through the horror. She's just trying to make yep. you empathize with these characters that have mm-hmm. been through the horror and feel exactly. a connection to them and want to sort of nurture them and look after them uh, because mm-hmm. of what they've gone through. And I think that makes it so much stronger when the characters... Because this is how Laszlo interprets the situation you know he's trying to reach out he, he's trying to make them all kind of feel better at points and they're just like don't worry like you you can't you're not here to solve that we just want you to get a mm-hmm. big reminder in the sky and there's one last important allegorical element to the lack of memories which is that uh that this is a story about sexual violence because the reason why people are taken up to the city uh, and the reason why um, their memories are missing is that they are violated, that they are forced to rear children. And uh, it's really 
dark and grim to know that half of our main cast, all of the Godspawn, who you get to know throughout the story, are the product of rape. And the reason why uh, the lack of memory is significant in Stranger Dreamer is that that's an allegory for the date rape. It's about people's free will being stripped away from them by, by drugs, and it's not just, and it's not just chemical. You know, there's Isagol who manipulates your emotions, which is an allegory for abusive relationships. There's Scaphus, who has the power to, you know, to overpower people. That's another aspect of sexual violation. It's it explores these different ways in which the people of Weep have been, um, have had their, their personhood stripped away from them. There's a real easy way to kind of, um, kind of approach that. I think all Mm -hmm. I can say is commend to Lanny Taylor, because Mm -hmm. one of the key things she tries to bring out here is, you know, all the gods, you know, they are the product of that, but that shouldn't define them. And Mm -hmm. that these characters are people of themselves and mm-hmm. in their particular case not saying, I say for some of the characters you know, they're looking to move on and be able to live their lives and something else I think we really have to commend Lainey Taylor for is how, um, how she centralises the victims in the narrative all too often um, sexual violence exists in fantasy in order to be avenged it's part of the, you know, the women in the refrigerator trope. You have these horrible, horrible deeds done against female characters, and you're like, ah, but we can justify it because eventually the bad guys are going to get their comeuppance. But all that does is that um, it uses the, the, the harm done in specific to women, um, and it uses it as a plot device, normally for to justify the actions of the male characters who are taking action in the story. But in this... The victims are at the very heart of it. We explore their problems, their damage, their journeys going forward to recovery. Scathis is dead. All the gods are dead. And whilst they, their phantoms still exist, you know, whilst they still haunt all our characters, they don't get to steal any limelight. They don't get to take up any space in this story. It's not about them. Scaphus is dead before we even know he exists. And the one person who can't move on uh, and is so stuck in the past, or rather, here's the interesting thing. No one is villainized for their inability to, to forgive because the, the text and the characters go out of their way to say, please be empathetic. Sarai, who's at odds with Minya, who is Minya's enemy, says to Laszlo, please don't judge her too harshly. Can I just force you then, just bring up something that you said, and Mm -hmm. only when you said it, it click. You know, who's still kind of stuck in their place. Mm -hmm. Minya is the only one of the Godspawn who can't move on. Yeah. And she is physically still the same age. Exactly, exactly, yeah. She is stuck in the time and she just can't get over it. And it's, you're never, they're not asking for like, no one's asking Minya to forgive what happened Mm -hmm. they're just asking her not to basically let it happen again Mm -hmm. and she can't do that because that's one of the ways that's part of the the big metaphor of stories that 
uh, how do people respond to trauma? Do people... Are people stunted by it? Like Errol Thane, who can no longer cry? Uh, are people stuck in the past, like Minya and Azarine, who can't let go? Uh, are, are, the, are people like most of the people of Weep, just terrified and constantly looking over their shoulder? Characters like Ruza do not remember um, Time Under the Gods. He was too young. Uh, he was three years old when they were liberated, but he's still afraid. Because he's learnt it from the people all around him. I think it's really important that when they start joking about uh, killing Godspawn, um, it's Ruza who cracks the joke. Because he has no reason to hate the Godspawn. Not really. He doesn't know them. But it's that kind of learnt cultural behaviour that mm-hmm. it's what we're trying to kind of shift. It's like, you know, can we fix it? Can we get people to change? And I think mm-hmm. this brings us beautifully to the climax. And I think we should look at what happens and where this book leaves off. Right. The main source of conflict is uh, Sarai and Laszlo trying to prevent calamity. When the people of Weep finally go up to the citadel above, what they're going to find is an army of ghosts. Minya has been collecting the dead. She's been summoning them up as they drift away and hiding them inside the heart of the citadel. This room, which is a narrow door, no one can open it, only Minya is small enough to fit inside. She slips within, and in there she has a mass, like hundreds of ghosts waiting with knives and meat hooks for the time when Weep comes up and she plans to use these ghosts to murder any person in Weep who comes up. And she delights in this. She's excited. When Errol Thane, Laszlo, and Azarine are on their way up in a flying sleigh, which is a thing that happens in this book. There's a lot of really cool stuff. Um, she's like, I can't wait. This, I'm finally going to get my revenge. And Laszlo and Sarai are trying to prevent this. And they're trying to do it by trying to broker peace. And it's impossible. And it's great you say it's impossible because that's mm-hmm. what happens in, in the story. In many respects, they don't fully succeed. Yeah, it's it, there's a huge refrain in this book is about uh, that which is impossible to receive. I think part four, each part in the story has a name. It's not called part four. Uh, they're called things like Thakra and Sathras. And they have the, they have a little like etymological breakdown saying like, oh, this is what this word means and this is where it comes from. And all of them come from an old story, uh, like the story of Thakra. And the story of Sathras is a man who fell in love with the moon and had to make peace with the impossible, that it was some things he couldn't have. And... Um, and something that Laszlo is trying to defy throughout it is the idea that anything is impossible. And he tries, in spite of it, to have it all. How does that work out, Duncan? How does the story come to an oh, end? So, so poorly. So, yeah. in the climax of this novel, we have an event where one of the other scientists destroys a... using a sort of bomb destroys one of the mm-hmm. anchors, these magical anchors that hold 
the yeah specifically doesn't destroy it because mizarfim is indestructible that's part of the folly it's actually kind of clever he digs a little hole by the side and sticks in a bunch of dynamite he blows it up but because the the thing is literally indestructible um all the force just gets directed downwards and doesn't just destroy the street but like shatters the underground canals underneath, which have actually been really well set up throughout the story. And the the anchor starts to sink. And as it sinks, slowly, yep. it, the citadel itself tilts. It starts yes. to... It doesn't collapse, but when it tilts, mm. the principal characters, the godspawn up in the citadel, are all thrown violently from their positions. So not only are the godspawn inside in danger... But the entire city of Weep is going to be squashed flat. And this is where we finally get the one point which I wasn't the massive fan of. And that is a bit of a... It builds tension, this line. But we hear that the Godspawn are being violently thrown across the Citadel. And three characters were standing outside of it. And they say, and one of them fell. And we get this chapter of which one. And I'm almost like, damn you. <laughs> the tension of that, I'm like... It's so hard. And the real question is, you stew this crazy back and forth in your head. You're running the whole time. You're like, okay, so is it this character or is it this character? I mean, it's one of the two. I mean, it couldn't be Sarai, right? That'd be the worst. I mean, oh my God, I just remembered the prologue exists. I completely forgot about the prologue. <laughs> Um, and then you're like, but so it's not only Sarai, because that'd be crazy. You couldn't be Sarai. Oh no, it's going to be Ruby. Because remember, Ruby was sort of joking about jumping off the side earlier. So this is sort of like, oh no, it's dramatic irony. But wait, what if it's Sparrow? Not Sparrow, she's my favourite. It didn't be a, the, the worst. like a bird. Oh, and you do. You go through this and you remember the prologue, which has a blue figured person slamming to the ground and literally being impaled upon a, um metal fence mm. and then we get the reveal then we find out who it is and my heart broke Geordie yeah it's Sarai Sarai falls uh, from the citadel and you have this horrible chapter with her as you know she has the experience of falling and you're still you're like Laszlo you're praying for a miracle and and nothing comes she dies she hits the ground and she's dead and as that occurs, we get a... the great miracle of the book takes place and everything starts to fall into place. Laszlo Strange, using unknown about magical powers, lifts the anchor back into place. Mm-hmm. And it's just revealed that... Right. He, he literally grabs it with his hand and is fruitlessly, as other people yell at him to stop, what is he doing? He's going to die. Um, he grabs the anchor and takes handfuls of indestructible material and lifts it back into place. And it's only as other people, the rest of the Tizakane and Thion Nero stare at him that he realizes that he has turned blue. Duncan, what do you think's going on here? Well, I'll be honest. I called this earlier in the text. A okay. point is made earlier about how some of the babies... Laszlo does some maths and he says, well, how many babies were there when you took the Citadel? And they're like, about 30. Mm -hmm. And he's like, how many young women were taken over the years? And they're like, 
hundreds. Mm-hmm. And he's just there like, so... And then at that point I was like, okay, all these orphan, strange children out in the world, they're the mm-hmm. gods spawn, aren't they? And I was so kind of confident and so like, because they say strange is the only person that can see Sarai in the dreams. I'm like, that will be why. Mm-hmm. And it's revealed and it's a good reveal. And it does a great impact because then everyone has to reassess, well, what if the gods spawn? We liked Laszlo. We thought he was a human. Yep. But... And this is a criticism I have. I think it undermines the previous message of humans and Godsmore can come together. Because Sarai and Laszlo, they're the bridge between the two worlds. And all of a sudden it's Mm -hmm. like, oh no, Laszlo wasn't a human. Sorry, he was actually a Godsmore too. And you're like, oh, so was he not? Mm. Can both sides come together? What's Okay. Well, that's something you said, but but you've just undermined your previous point, Duncan, because... They like Laszlo. The Tizakane love Laszlo. Laszlo's their friend. So now we have to reckon with the fact that their friend uh, was one of them. Do you know what? I kind of have. I'm going to bring something else up. I have undermined okay. my point a little bit. But I... I'm going to bring something else up. Um, when I first read this, I was completely sidewinded. I did not see it coming. I, I, I just had missed it. And I think part of the reason why was that I did not think they could not be blue. Like, Laszlo's not blue when he begins the story. Um, and um, and uh, so I just was like, oh, because a whole big thing I had for the story was I was thinking about, well, if they did escape, where would they go? Because they'll never fit in. They'll always look different. They can't escape who they are. Um, so where would they even escape to if they could? And so the fact that it turns out they don't necessarily have to be blue, they can turn blue, uh, via contact with Mizarfium changes a great deal. And I also, um, I think I literally just missed some of the instances where Laszlo touches Mizarfium and his skin turns grey. They're really subtle, I literally just didn't, they are, it is subtle, and I did just miss it. Uh, but more than I think I was supposed to, I think I must have just literally been distracted at two opportunities in the text. Because reading through it last time, it's brought up a lot. It's like brought up four times, which is way more than just um, foreshadowing. It's like, hey, pay attention to this, Geordie. His skin's turning grey. It's not turning on else's skin grey. Don't you think that's weird? Geordie! And I'm like, no, it's fine. Everything's fine. There's nothing weird the about this. The moment that he can see Sarai in the dream, if you hadn't clicked then and gone, oh, something's different about Laszlo, something... Well, I just assumed it's because he's strange dreamer, isn't it? He's just got better dreams than everyone else. So I want to really kind of push on now to the climax in the final moments. Um, and yep. then I want to just say, so in the final moments, Laszlo goes up to the Citadel on a winged creature he summons yeah, he... forth with his magic, mm-hmm. and he goes to Minya and mm-hmm. says, please... Bring Sarai back as a ghost. Do this for me. Mm-hmm. And Minya goes, sure, but without strings attached. As she brings, uh, Minya brings Sarai back, she then uses, sort of forces her through Sarai's own voice to say to Laszlo, you are going to do what I ask or I will let her soul go. And that is essentially where the book finishes. 
That's the last line of a book. That's it. That's it. That's the end of it. Like, the last line, and then you have to wait for the next book to come out, Duncan, because when I first read this, the sequel wasn't out yet. Uh, you have to wait and speculate what happens now. What's going to happen? Because Laszlo has the power to save them all. But Minya doesn't want to be saved. She wants revenge. I think this brings us very nicely to the next section of our podcast. Geordie, what are your mm-hmm. favourite scenes slash quotes from Strange the Dreamer? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, um, I was halfway through collecting a quote uh, because it's like... It's a great way in which Laszlo's introduced to us. So I think I'll just read the partial quote I have here. Which is when in part one, when we're sort of still getting to know Laszlo as a grown-up, or at least as a, as a young man, um, you sort of established strange the dreamer. The quote is, He believed in magic like a child, and in ghosts like a peasant. And not only demonstrates, you know, the... Uh, Strange's dreamness, how his nose is always in a book, how he doesn't really live in the real world, but also how dismissive everyone is around him. I think that's beautiful in kind of establishing the character, because those early chapters really do kind of say, you know, how almost unsuspecting it is of kind of Strange and how he's kind of undervalued in his society. But once again, my heart goes out to a much later scene when we're in the thick of the romance and Laszlo and Sarai are moving through their dreams together and we get this wonderful quote about the unconscious Mm -hmm. mind. The unconscious mind is open terrain, no walls or barriers for better or worse. Thoughts and feelings are free to wander. The characters leaving books to live life in other stories. That quote for me really surmises the escapism that Laszlo and Sarai have in their romance from the horrific situation and the trauma that they're experiencing in the real world. You know, they're stepping out of the story of the carnage and the brutalisation into their own narrative of just two young lovers. And I think it wonderfully encapsulates that mm-hmm. part, those chapters when they're together. Yeah, I, I've said before that this book is sort of endlessly quotable. It actually has quotes in it, which seem kind of insubstantial, which I've actually brought into my day-to-day life. Maybe not day to day, but I have definitely told people, said that someone is lost in the vastness of their credulity when they believe something they shouldn't, uh, which is kind of a throwaway line from a jerk in the book, but I love it. I think it's so good. It's so pompous and, um, and overwrought. <laughs> I use it all the time. I also do, um, when I like something, I say, you have ruined my tongue for all oh, other tastes. Beautiful, a beautiful bit of uh, wordplay there where Lasso first uses it when eating a sweet and everyone gets all bashful and it's only later <clears> when he's um, essentially just snogging Sarah that he goes, oh, this is the context you're meant to use it in. <laughs> That's kind of it, yeah. I love um, a lot of the interplay. I, the, this character has not gone mentioned, but I absolutely love Calixti. Who is a uh, who after the time skip is Laszlo's best friend? Uh, she has this. Uh, Lainey Taylor has this wonderful habit of she introduces a character and she says, "And now here is a short story. In two pages, I'm going to tell you a little short story about this character and how cool they are." And you're going to be like, "Wow, you literally could have written a book about this person." But you were like, "I'm just going to flex. I'm just going to throw him in there." Uh, Calixti, who is this like acrobat and master thief. 
And the only reason she's on this expedition is that she raided a tomb to steal jewels just because it was there. Which is kind of making this our first uh, Conan crossover. <laughs> um, Conan the Barbarian is now a five foot one feisty lesbian. Uh, she's so great. She's she's endlessly quotable. She's lovable. Uh, she's a great counterpart to um, uh, to Laszlo in that she's uh, she's she's snarkier than him. She's more willing to basically stand up for him. Uh, they have a great back and forth. Oh, there's one final point which I haven't made so far, and it's so incredibly clever about this book. Lenny Taylor does this, and that's between Laszlo and Sarai. At the start of the book, Sarai's not in part one. Uh, she only puts part two, so you've got this big gap, you've got this part break uh, between the two perspectives. But then, as the book goes on, they get closer and closer, uh, the characters, but also the gaps between their POVs. They start out, it's chapter to chapter, but then by sort of part three of the book, it's breaks in text, so it'll be three dots um, between jumping between Sarai's POV and Laszlo's POV. But as we get closer, if we get to like, the climax of the book in part four, it gets even closer. And by the final chapter, it's literally paragraph Sarai, paragraph Laszlo, as both the narrative, the way she's writing these two characters' POVs, physically on the page, in the text, get closer, so do the characters. And it's so brilliant, and I almost forgot to mention it. So there, it's an incredible bit of literary uh, skill put into the book. Yeah, that's fantastic, Duncan. And that's something I never got to experience because I always listen to it uh, as an audiobook, uh, but there you go. Something else that I'm, I'm missing out on because it's written on the page. Aside from how to spell the characters' names, I have no idea how to spell Tyson Kane. And I have no um, idea how to pronounce them. So <laughs> I'm going to say one thing since we talked about things you missed, uh, and you talked about the physicality of the book, I'll bring up a little something about the audiobook, which is that it is fantastic. It is the best recorded audiobook I've ever listened to. Um, even better than the amazing Dune audiobook, because um, the... Oh, God, I wish I remembered the voice actor's name. I'm going to add it in post. Steve West. Right there. Um, and uh, he does a, such an amazing job. He's so good. He, uh, he has this amazing way of capturing all the characters' voices. He has this just baseline, amazing narration voice. And they do this amazing thing when they cap off each of the um, each of the parts of the story. Uh, they have this atmospheric music playing, and then he slowly, oh so slowly, says part four. Long pause. The music swells. Sathras. Long pause. Really takes his time. It's so atmospheric and profound. Uh, amazing uh, work by that voice actor. I wish I got to see him in more audiobooks. And that leaves, so I think it's pretty obvious, we both like this book. Yep. But I have only one last tiny criticism, which will lead us into our final section, which is the next book that we will be looking at in a fortnight's time. And my only criticism is, this book, the story of this book, is not complete. It is left mm. on such a cliffhanger. We do not know what Laszlo's final decision will be in relation to Minya. We do not mm -hmm. know the mysteries behind Rafe, the white bird. We do not mm -hmm. know how these two factions will ever come together, or if they'll ever come together. You don't know and what happened to all those babies. It's a frustration, and it's a mystery. Mm -hmm. And that's why, normally, 
this would be my opportunity to pick my book for next week. And I actually had one lined up. And I've mm-hmm. already told Georgie. I've already yep. asked him to go and buy it so mm-hmm. we could crack on. But I don't think in good faith I could pick that book now. Because I yeah, need to this know. Is, this is our first occasion. And I'm glad it happened already in episode two. And I lured you into it. There is going to be a rule in this podcast. Which is that if you introduce a book, the other person then gets past the ball. And they decide what we read next. I can never decide to read the sequel to a book that I have recommended. Because that would be super tiresome. If I introduce a book and Duncan hates it, um, it would be really mean of me to then make him a month later read the next book. So this is how it's going to work from now on. Once we like a book and we recommend it, if there's another book, the only the other person can choose to read that book. Even if it's a year down the line, only Duncan can choose to make us read a sequel to a book that I've already recommended. And thus, I hereby make it official, the next book will be Muse of Nightmares by Lanny Taylor, the sequel to Strength the Dreamer. Here's a little teaser of a story about my experience reading this book. I got through a sizable portion of this book uh, all in one night. Uh, not because I was up reading late, because I had um, I had gone to one of the best film-watching experiences of my life, Duncan. I was in North Carolina. I, I took the bus to go to a cinema out beyond the edge of Asheville because it was the only movie theater showing Dragon Ball Super Broly. You are a sad, sad man. Um, I'm not a sad, sad man. It was an amazing film experience. The crowd was great. People were hollering and cheering. And then I missed the bus. I missed the last bus that would take me back to Asheville. (laughs) So it was 11 at night um, in October. uh, And I had to walk 10 miles to get back to college. So I went, well, I like going for late night walks. So I put on my headphones and I listened to The Muse of Nightmares. I made a significant portion of the way through the story. Um, Just marching through the night, down a highway, through forests, all the way back through Asheville to my my room. I got back with 1% of battery left in my phone and I immediately passed out. Oh, as you should. That was an insane. That's that's a thing perfect do, reading but condition. I'm so happy that. I'm um, just so you know, I will not be experiencing the book in that format. I intend to sit down quietly in my front room with a physical book, but I look forward to experiencing the story and uh, talking about it with you on our next podcast. So, mm. to all of this, anyone has on also read podcast. *Strange the Dreamer*, please let us know your thoughts. Do you agree? Do you hate it? If you hate it, I would love to hear about that, actually. Yeah. That would be truly surprised. I can't really imagine anyone hating this book, but that's just a lack of imagination on my part. Because there's a lot of books that I don't care for, which are immensely popular, and it defies every part of my brain. And if you've never read it, and it's not even on your radar, like it was for me, you owe it to yourself. Go, give it a go. It is a bit more kind of YA. It does have kind of that romantic slant. But the actual prose and the way it's written is beautiful, profound, and just a delight from cover to cover. So, 
That's a final recommendation. Give it a go. Thanks, Duncan. And that's been all from me, your other co-host, Geordie. We'll see you in a fortnight's time with a muse of nightmares. See you then. Goodbye. <laughs>